You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. So if I had to rank my two favorite foods, it would be Thai food number one and Indian food number two. And y'all, we've lived here about two years, and I'm still very, very sad that we haven't eaten either of them. <laughs> I know, but that's like 30 minutes away. I'm talking right here, right now. We don't have either of those. Hey, if anybody's out there listening on live stream and you're thinking, I want to open a restaurant in Murphy, don't open another Mexican place. <laughs> Open an Indian place. I can remember the first time that I had Indian food. Rob and I were good friends with a couple several years ago, and she's from India, and he basically looks like me. And they had us over for dinner one night, and they wanted to introduce us not just to Indian food, but to Indian culture. And so she had cooked tandoori chicken. You know what that is? She cooked rice and she had cooked naan. Oh, naan is one of my favorite things, right? It's like the flat Indian bread that you use to pick up your food. But what I didn't know when we sat down to dinner was that in that culture, people only eat with their right hand. Right? And so... The husband was like, okay, Mike, we really want to introduce you to Indian culture, and so you're going to have to eat this food with your right hand. And I'm like, dude, the chicken's got bones in it. How am I going to do this? He's like, well, you just tear off a piece of the naan, and you use it to rip off the chicken, and you pick up the rice. And I'm like, look, I'm going to have to sit on my hand and discipline myself not to do this. So I tried it, and eventually I just gave up, okay? But he told us why people do that. <laughs> Some of you already know. Keep going. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Use your right hand to do one thing and your left hand to another. I don't know if there's still a toilet paper shortage going on, but Mary, you saw that on the Look, here's the point. There are just some things in some cultures that you don't do. Paul knew that. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't want to hinder your opportunity to share the gospel with certain people in certain places who have certain cultural customs, then there are just certain things you do and do not do when you're among those people. The Apostle Paul knew that very, very well. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he talks about how he's willing to give up his own cultural preferences in order to meet people where they are, in order to share the gospel with them. Now, look, here's the deal. Paul doesn't change subjects when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Like, we started in at chapter 8 last week, and I told you that chapters 8 through 10 are essentially this argument Paul's presenting about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And chapter 9, he doesn't move away from that. He just gets personal. Okay, he offers himself 
as an example. He's the kind of person who, in other words, has given up his own Christian freedom and some of his own personal rights, whether it's the right to eat this or to drink that or to take a believing wife along with him or to get paid as a minister of the gospel, as he says in this chapter, he's doing it all for the sake of the gospel. Really, chapter 9 is Paul telling the Corinthians all over again, just as he told them in chapter 4, imitate me. Imitate me. In fact, that's exactly how he's going to end this entire section. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says this, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So in a very real sense, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians is more show than it is like here's a picture of a person whose whole life has been reshaped by the cross of the Lord Jesus. Like here's a picture of a man whose life has been completely turned upside down by the love of God. A man who has a genuine desire to share God's love with as many people as he can. You see, for Paul, that's what it means to finish the race and to win the prize. So, this means for Paul, the most important question was not, can I do this? Can I eat this? Can I drink this? Can I watch this? Or can I listen to this? For Paul, the most important question was, how can I win more people to Jesus? That's what it came down to for him. That question colored everything he did. And he was more than willing to lay down any of his Christian freedoms necessary if doing so meant that he could win more people to Jesus. And that's really where we launch into this passage this morning by discovering that with Paul, the most important thing was the gospel, not his freedoms. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of, our, of the Lord Jesus, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much? 
if we reap material things from you. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we haven't made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me! if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have no reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights. Now five times in these first 18 verses, Paul mentions his rights. And here's his point. He's relinquished many of these things because as he says in verse 12, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. You see, foremost among these rights for Paul is Paul's right to receive compensation from preaching the gospel as a traveling missionary. And he makes clear in this first passage from this chapter using several illustrations that it's perfectly acceptable for a minister of the gospel to earn his living as a minister of the gospel. The first one has to do with military service. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? What's the answer? No one. Someone who's in the military is providing uniforms. Someone who is in the military is provided a firearm, provided ammunition, provided food, provided travel to get to and from wherever the military has called them to go. In other words, the expenses are paid for the soldier who serves. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Right? Like you don't own a vineyard of grapes and decide, you know, I gotta go down there to Ingalls to pick up some grapes too. <laughs> no, that's not how that works. What do you do? If you want grapes, you just go pick them. Right? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And Paul then moves into the Old Testament and he says, look, even the law of Moses said that you don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Everybody knows if you want an animal to work for you, you gotta what? You gotta feed it, right? And Paul goes on to say that this isn't really about animals. The Lord was talking about those who have set themselves apart to serve, to serve. And he goes on to talk about in the temple as well. He goes. He also says a plowman and a thresher both work in hopes of sharing in the crop. All of those illustrations. There are several of them there. Paul is essentially saying that it's okay, it's acceptable, it's right and good for someone to make their living from the gospel for the benefit of God's people. 
But here's the deal. Paul says he's chosen to give up that right so that he can offer the gospel what? Free. Free of charge. Now, you need to know that Paul did not always do this. If you go to the end of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, you read these words. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now here's the question. In Corinth, Paul saw his decision not to accept financial help as a vital ministry decision. Why? Why from the Philippians but not the Corinthians? you got to go all the way back to the first four chapters of the book. Remember, remember all of those top-notch traveling philosophers and teachers that we talked about? Those kind of traveling uh, gurus who were the talk of the town. Well, when those traveling gurus came through Corinth, guess what they expected whenever they gave a good speech or whenever you kind of bought into or enjoyed their teaching? They expected to be paid. And guess what? If you kind of bought into their teaching for life and you wanted to take the 201 and the 301 and the 401 class, in other words, you wanted to go a little bit deeper, what do you think you had to do? You had to pay. What? There were higher fees associated with that deeper level teaching. Well, Paul, on the other hand, wanted to make sure in the city of Corinth that everyone understood that the gospel message is what? Free. It's free. He wanted to make sure that everyone he came into contact with, whether rich or poor, knew that the gospel was for who? Them. For them. It wasn't only for those who could afford it. Unlike the latest material from the traveling teacher who charged a fee so that you could get the inside scoop, Paul wanted everybody to know that the gospel message is for everyone, and it's free. So what did Paul do? Paul made tennis. Paul worked with his hands, making and mending tents. In other words, he was willing to give up his personal rights if it meant that the gospel would get a hearing. There's a question, what in the world frees someone like Paul to say no to personal comforts, to say no to familiar clothing and to familiar food and familiar surroundings, and to say no to his right to receive compensation as a minister of the gospel? What is the answer? It's the gospel. Here's a man, as I said at the beginning, who has been transformed himself by the love of Christ. The Lord Jesus gave up everything in order to secure the blessings of the gospel for you and for me. Paul wrote earlier in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, Have this 
mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he what? Do you remember? Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So think about the Lord Jesus for a minute. He gave up the right to be with his heavenly Father. He gave up the right to receive the adoring and eternal praise of angels. He gave up the right to be rightly praised and exalted by human beings. He gave up the right to a good reputation. The only person in the history of planet Earth who rightly and completely deserved that. He gave up even the right to life itself by becoming obedient to death on the cross. And I think if the Apostle Paul were standing in front of us today, he might say it like this. Look, the, the Lord Jesus gave up so much for me. He gave up everything for me. What's a little meat or a payday from the church in Corinth? I can, I can make tents. I just want people to know Jesus. I just want people to have an opportunity to hear the gospel, and I don't want to hinder that. Jesus is inviting us to embrace that same kind of lifestyle, to embrace the cross just as Paul did. In fact, this is exactly what the kingdom of God often looks like. Winning looks like what? Losing. Life looks like death. And the road to victory is often marked by the seeming defeat of the cross. In other words, you and I often have to give up things. Just like Jesus gave up so much for us. If the gospel is to be furthered in our lives and furthered, through us. But that doesn't mean that it's truly death to do that. Jesus himself said as much in Mark chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. If you want to see someone who embodies those two verses, all you got to do is look at the Apostle Paul. He knew that knowing Jesus was life itself, and so he was willing to lay down all these other things so that other people, too, might come to know Jesus. So what was more important to Paul, his freedom or the gospel? But then as we continue to look at this passage, you see Paul saying, look, if you, if you want to win people, you've got to be flexible. Look at verse 20 or 19. Look at verse 19. Paul says, for though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, 
that I might win those outside the wall. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And why do I do it? I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Now look, twice in this chapter, Paul has reminded the Corinthians that he is a free man. Verse 1, and then again in verse 19. However, Paul also wants to remind them that he's been entrusted with the gospel. He's been entrusted with the gospel as a steward or a household manager, which means he has a responsibility to God to get the word out. In fact, in verse 19 or verse 16, he says, a necessity has been laid upon me. Paul is compelled, right? Not because he chose this life, but because he was chosen by God as a vessel through whom God was going to get the gospel to the nations. And all this is why. This is why Paul was willing to lay down his rights and his own cultural preferences in order to gain a hearing for the gospel wherever he went. This is why he's willing to lay down his Christian freedom and become a servant to all. Now, we introduced this topic a little bit last week, and I kind of want to round it out here, like, because here in verse 19, you and I discover the true purpose of Christian liberty. Look at verse 19 again. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Folks, this is what Christian liberty is. It's not the freedom to do what you and I want to do. Instead, it's the freedom to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. If you look at the verse, Paul says, For though I am free from all. There's the freedom portion. Right? There's the reminder that just as the Corinthians were free to eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul says, guess what? I'm just like you. I'm free to do that too. But notice what else he says. He says, I have made myself. In other words, there's this personal decision, this decision of discipline, where Paul says, you know what? I'm not going to make use of these rights. In other words, I'm going to become a slave, a servant to all. There's the flexibility. And for what reason? That I might win more for the sake of the gospel. So listen, Christian freedom isn't this. Great. Now I get to eat and drink and watch and listen to and wear and do all the things that I couldn't do while I was growing up in that strict, legalistic, nothing but rules hole. That's not Christian liberty. That is immature. Christian freedom is the realm of the mature. Christian freedom isn't about getting to do what you want to do. It's all about the freedom to be flexible for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of weaker believers. Sometimes that means saying yes, and other times it means saying what? No. 
I have this friend in our church in Alabama who always used to go around saying, blessed are the flexible, for they will not get what? Do you know that one? Bent out of shape. <laughs> right? That's what Christian freedom is. A certain flexibility that allows you to enter into other people's worlds in order to present the gospel to them. Now, missionaries have to do this all the time. Okay? I want to offer you just a few examples to kind of, kind of, kind of help you get a feel for what this might look like. Christian liberty is the freedom to eat dog when natives in the village serve it to you. Christian liberty is the freedom to choose never again to eat southern barbecue and bacon double cheeseburgers because you're called to serve Christ in the Muslim areas of a major American city. Christian liberty is the freedom that comes to a single lady missionary who, who's brought up to believe that women shouldn't wear pants, but who disciplines herself to wear the traditional clothing of a tribe in Central Asia, including pants. Because in that culture, only loose women wear dresses and show their ankles and their calves. Isn't it interesting how cultures can sometimes be the exact opposite of one another? There are many traditional churches where if women do wear pants, guess what? They're the ones who are considered out of place. Again, blessed are the flexible. Christian freedom is the freedom that allows a very private person to open up her home in a society where people just walk in without knocking. In fact, a society that doesn't even have a word for privacy. Christian liberty is, a, is about a clean freak who restrains himself from, from getting out his hand sanitizer every time he shakes someone's hand. Now, isn't that appropriate for right now? <laughs> or touches something in a third world country. The authors of the book I'm quoting from mention a missionary couple who actually ruined their ministry in a third world country because of this kind of thing. Christian liberty is the freedom to sing and dance to tribal hymns the way that tribal people sing and dance to them, even though by upbringing and personality you have never been comfortable showing that kind of emotion in worship. Christian liberty is about a Corinthian Christian getting invited to his unsaved neighbor's house for a feast and being served meat that he doesn't want to eat because of former convictions but eating it anyway for the sake of the gospel because that man's soul is more important than some scruple about not eating but then Christian liberty is about another Christian from Corinth at the same party who has no issues with eating meat but just as he gets ready to take his fork and his knife and dig into that slab of meat Somebody leans over and says to him, hey, Mike, uh, you might not want to eat that. That, that sacrifice to an idol. And he backs away and he puts down his fork and his knife and he goes, oh man, thank you for telling me that. 
Blessed are the what? Flexible, for they will not be bent out of shape. The free are the flexible. Look, friends, the gospel is offensive enough on its own. Way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul said, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. The gospel is offensive enough on its own without we who know Jesus being jerks for Jesus. Right? Demanding that unbelievers think and believe and dress and eat and talk like and watch and listen to the same things that you and I do as Christians. Look, Paul was willing to meet people where they were so that he could gain a hearing for the gospel of Jesus. He did not require people to alter their preferences or their practices in order to earn an opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, this didn't make Paul a chameleon Christian who changed his colors to fit in wherever he went. The one thing Paul never compromised was the content of the gospel. But guess what? He was willing to lay aside his cultural preferences and, if need be, sit down at a table where he was offered dog to eat and eat it for the sake of not offending so as to give opportunity to share the gospel. Now, this demonstrated Paul's desire to get the word out and to allow nothing to stand in the way of an opportunity to share. And look, here's the deal, and I've thought about this this week. Sometimes I wonder if the church hasn't done the opposite, if we haven't actually put up obstacles to the gospel. If we haven't made the assumption that, that folks are supposed to come to us, that they're supposed to meet us where we are, rather than us going to them and meeting them where they are. Friends, ours is a go-and-tell gospel, and Paul embodied that, even to the point of being willing to relinquish some of his Christian freedom if it hindered his ability to get the word out. After all, Paul says that he would rather endure anything than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And isn't that exactly what Jesus endured? <clears throat> Not just anything, but the worst thing in order for us to have a relationship with God. Perhaps then, like Paul, you and I can endure the loss of some of our Christian liberty if it means gaining a hearing for the gospel. Finally, in the Last paragraph of chapter 9, Paul says, if you want to win people, sometimes you've got to make personal sacrifices. Sometimes you've got to leave Fluffy at home and go eat somebody else's dog. <laughs> now, do not tell my middle dog that we're talking about eating dog. <laughs> we have a dog. Her name is Luna. 
she's not yet a year old, and we don't plan to cook her. Okay? She is too little to worry about. I'm glad we get a full meal out of her anyway. Okay? In this final paragraph, Paul says, look, do you not know, this is verse 24, that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so, I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, here at the close of chapter 9, Paul uses what would have been a thank you, Captain Obvious illustration to anybody who was listening. Why do people compete in athletic events to win? I think that's why sometimes I get so frustrated with people who waste their abilities, right? Does that ever happen to you? Like people who are incredibly gifted, but who are like, man, please give that to me. <laughs> right? Paul says everyone competes to win. And Paul says that we should see ourselves in a race as Christians. And we should be running to win. Look, this requires a real sense of purpose and self-discipline. And Paul talks about the fact here that he had both of those. What was his mission? It was to reach as many people as possible with the gospel. And, and what was his training regimen? He says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Now, you and I have to see this little paragraph inside of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. When we do that, we recognize that Paul is talking about denying himself certain things that he might enjoy, like meat sacrifice to idols, so that he can win as many people to Christ as possible. In other words, for Paul, no, it's not just about the believer with the weaker conscience who might be lured back into sin, if that person sees me eating meat, maybe that's okay for me, but not for that person. You see, for Paul, it's also about recognizing that there are certain things that I might choose to do that might be okay for me to do, but might automatically lose me the opportunity to, to, to share the gospel with someone if I do it in front of them. Like in an Indian context, eating with both of my hands. That might be so culturally offensive that right out of the gate, I'm not going to get an opportunity to talk with those people about Christ. So Paul says, here's the deal. I'm going to run the win. And I'm going to say a great big no to certain things just like a high-level athlete who's in training for it, if saying yes to those things prevents me from being able to share the gospel with unbelievers. You see, at the end of the day, Paul doesn't want anything more than to share in the blessings of the gospel with anybody and everybody who will give him a hearing. That's what he says in verse 23. That's what Paul's chasing. 
challenge. The challenge of 1 Corinthians 9 extends far beyond what you and I eat or wear or drink or watch or listen to. It forces us to ask whether we live above all for ourselves or whether we live for Christ. In other words, do I share Christ's concern for the lost? If so, am I prepared to make costly decisions for the sake of trying to win them to Christ? What are you chasing? What's the prize at the end of the road for you? Every one of us carries around in our hearts this picture of what life will look like when we cross the finish line. We all do that. We all have some vision of a preferred future, and most of us, if not all of us, are willing to make the sacrifices necessary to get there. You and I will deposit blood and sweat and tears, just like a world-class athlete who's always saying yes to this and no to this, so that they can be in optimum shape to compete. And look, Paul will be the first one to tell you that there is a cost associated with following Jesus and embracing the mission of Jesus. After all, who is going to go and share the gospel with the villagers who eat dogs? Somebody's got to go. And somebody's got to eat fluffy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize to you in the first service. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are sacrifices to be made. There were for the Apostle Paul, and there have been for countless missionaries who have left everything to go and tell. And look, there will be for you and for me. You might not be a call, you might not be called to go across the ocean to the nations. But the Lord may compel you to walk across the street and have dinner with your neighbor, and you might sit down at the dinner table, and you might go, I don't know what this is. <laughs> well, what are you going to do? Because you want the opportunity to share the gospel with you. You're going to eat it. And you're going to like it. <laughs> or at least you're going to <laughs> because you want to preserve the opportunity to share the gospel. And look, sometimes this is what you have to cling to. Paul reminds us that it will be worth it in the end when we cross the finish line and we receive the victor's crown. And we hear from the Lord Jesus the words found in Matthew 25. You know them? His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. Now, don't want to hear those words. Amen. Do you want to hear those words? I And along the way, it will make sacrifice. It will take sacrifice if we're to embrace the mission of Jesus. 